Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to History and Technicolor podcast. I am David, the host of the History of England, and my partner in podcastery is me, Wolf O'Neill. Okay. At History and Technicolor, we discuss our interesting, exciting historical movies. Every episode, one of us will propose a historical movie, we'll discuss it, and then we'll mark it against two dimensions historical accuracy and how great a movie it is. Then we're going to post it on the History of England website and the Facebook site, and you lot get to comment. You get to tell us what you think and tell us whether we said the right things or not. So, this week, it's a film that Wolf is bringing. So, Wolf, what are you bringing this week? Uh, okay, this week I'm proposing Amadeus, the 1984 movie by Milos Forman. Obviously about Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, but really focusing on Salieri as opposed to Mozart as your main character. He's kind of the protagonist that leads you through it. Uh, it's set in 1781 in Vienna and essentially leads you through their relationship, the rise and fall of Mozart. Who's Salieri then? Just, you know, just because there might be people out there who have not seen the film. I mean, you know, my mother's great-aunt, I don't think, seen it. Uh, Salieri is a court composer from the time who was really significant, but whose legacy diminished fairly quickly afterwards. Okay, uh, why did I choose this film? Basically, I selected this because I had never seen it, and it had been on my watch list for... 15 plus years. I was never particularly interested in classical okay. music and I really worried that the movie would be a really boring biopic. I was aware of the length, like I was going to walk into something that might really drag right. on and on and on. A bit like Zodiac did for you. <laughs> yeah. So I selected it because... A little bit like that, actually. Yeah. I was 
so because Milos Forman recently just died, there was lots of articles kind of talking about his career and the impact that he'd had on all the movies that he'd made. And this is obviously probably his biggest or joint biggest alongside One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Also, it's hard to ignore a movie since it won eight Academy right. Awards. So I'm thinking to myself, everything here should be really good. Okay. So let's go in and see. Great. And what do you think, in summary? I, <laughs> Are you allowed I to summarise? You I did loved it. love it. Right, yeah, very good. I really, really enjoyed it. And for me, as simple as it sounds, the mark that I really enjoyed it was that I started it really late at night, thinking that I would watch it sort of in multiple parts. Mm. And I watched almost the entirety of the movie without really registering that I had how much time had passed. Uh, that's a pretty good sign, isn't it? I mean, and it's quite a long movie because the version you had was the director's cut, wasn't it's it? T- it's 20 minutes longer, minutes. yeah, that's right. Of course, I was alive when it came out, which you possibly weren't. No. Got to recover from that. <laughs> okay, so I was 20 when it came out. And my father had forced us to listen to Mozart and Beethoven all through our children, talked to my brother and sister, it scarred them for life. Things were different in those days, Wolf. And so we'd kind of reacted against it, but I just loved Amadeus. I've seen it mm, five or six billion times. Did it alter your opinion of Mozart and his music? Not really. Well, difficult question. But we kind of fetishise Mozart a little bit, don't we? You know, he is the person, I think, I would reckon, if he did a poll and said, who's the best musician ever lived, classical music, it would be... Obviously, just after Robert Plant, it would be Amadeus, wouldn't it? It would be it would make sound. But it's brilliant with the music, isn't it, this film? That's easily the best thing about the movie. Yeah. All the scenes that I remember the most, the ones <clears throat> where I truly felt myself being drawn in, mm-hmm. are the ones where they're either composing together or Salieri is talking through the music yeah. and he's bringing each of the instruments out and you can hear every part of the song being composed together and how the music is laid over the top of the film. It's never really within the scenes... Uh, it always feels kind of above and yeah. around you all the time. It was wonderful. They clearly committed and they were like, you can't make this movie without the music. Yeah. So they really throw themselves in and they have a lot of fun. And I was listening actually to the, the extras on there. There was an interview with Peter Schaefer and Milosh. One of the things Peter Schaefer said was, there's a third character emerging in the film, which I thought was really interesting because, you know, it is kind of a third character, isn't it? I have a theory actually that all art is better explained. You know, if you go into the... National Gallery, okay, and you're going to look at some pictures. I don't know if you've ever done that, but there's too much. There was just a bunch of pictures of people killing each other or sitting there looking daft or whatever, and you think, yeah, what, whatever. Somebody comes along to you and says, look, this is a Titian, and this is what he was, and this is what he did. Suddenly that, that painting comes to life. This is only my personal theory. And I think it's sometimes a bit the same with music. You know, listen to a bit of music, explain to you, begin to understand it. And the confitatis scene is brilliant, isn't it? You know, where he's on his deathbed... And they're composing it together and yeah. he constructs the music. It's just brilliant. And it's it's fascinating. The music that you're hearing is clearly not existing in the scene. You're listening to their thoughts yeah. and you're hearing their minds working as they kind of compose within their own brains. And the fact that they give that to you at the same time is, mm. is incredible. It should be noted, because I don't think we've said it, that this is based on a play right? Yeah, by Peter Schaefer mm-hmm. that was written in 1979, I think. Now, it's interesting that this film does not in any way feel to me theatrical. I think Milos took Schaefer in hand and said, this is going to be completely different. It is not going to be like a piece of theatre. Agreed. But to kind of go back to 
the roots of everything and kind of work through it. I have a key quote which kind of sums up the critical response that this movie received. So just to be clear, it won eight Academy Awards, including director, actor, film, adapted screenplay. And I think that I was reading It's Only This and Silence of the Lambs where they won the big five for one movie. Right. It had two actors who went into the best actor category from the same movie. Ah, is that right? Which okay. I don't think happens very often. So this isn't the big deal. So which deal, one? Who won? Uh, if Murray Abraham won. Did he? Yes. Um, yeah. I, I just think that you... When you think about all those movies that win a lot of awards, you have to think, like, why? Uh, and obviously some of them maybe don't deserve them, but, but generally is it is a mark of quality. And if nothing else, it's a mark that a very large amount of the population think that it is very good. Mm. Uh, the quote that I had was, this film is arguably the finest movie ever made about the process of artistic creation and the unbridgeable gap between human genius and mediocrity. What I'm getting from reading this and a lot of the discussions is it's not really about the history of Mozart. It's not really about how events took place at the time and kind of truth and historical accuracy. Mm. It's using this as a backdrop for a study about something else, mm. about humanity's connection with the arts and our creativity and mm. that competitiveness between each other. And religion also plays heavily into this. Mm. So it's a perfect setting for this kind of deeper study, but it's also easier to swallow because it's made really fun. They do, he does really well at making you feel that Salieri feels personally affronted with God. It's, it's truly, actually, an exceptional performance. One that really has so many multiple layers to it, and, and it sinks deeper and deeper in as you kind of move through the film. I still don't really know where I stand on him, because I feel like he's altering through all the scenes. Even at the end of the movie, he still hasn't really... I don't think he's really come to terms with who he is. Hmm. He's still struggling the eternal struggle that he's going to have forever. So when you get the scenes where they're composing together and you feel completely in there and you believe that he is, like, helping him and he wants to and the adoration and admiration that he has combined with the absolute hatred. Mm. I think you're absolutely right. He's unresolved. He's not a standard villain, is he? He's not a villain that says, right, I'm going to murder this guy because I hate him and he's getting in the way of my career. He's got a very complicated relationship. There's love and hate. And actually, the hatred is reserved for God, not Mozart. Yes. And certainly not his music. I just think that the movie is really complex and with each viewing, you're kind of looking for different things and you can really break it down and, and get lost in this for quite a long time. Mm. Uh, I, but it, despite that, it's really fun. The sets are lavish. Mm. There's a great amount of joy and enthusiasm in all these scenes. Simon Callow, uh, and there are all these people just, like, running around, having a great time. Um, Simon Callow is very Simon Callow, isn't he? <laughs> yes. He, he, was, he was in the play version when it first came out. Oh, was he? I think he was Mozart, actually. You can see him more as Mozart than Salieri, certainly at that yeah. time. I just think that it's a, a fantastic introduction into the story, the characters, the use of Salieri as your narrator mm. and as a questionable narrator makes everything more interesting. And you know you're not really watching an historical account because you're getting the like, remembered events. It's much more interesting seeing a scene and then coming back to their conversation and having him recount his feelings and his observations and memories of the time. That's quite an interesting approach. Mm. It's helpful having Salieri lead you through the story. Right. So you think it's clear to everybody that this is not attempting to be a historical record. I got a quote, actually, from Peter Schaeffer, which says, obviously Amadeus was never intended to be a documentary biography of the composer, and the film uh, is even less of one. 
which is quite interesting. Do you think that's obvious when you're watching the film for the first time? It was obvious to you by the sound of things. I would say it wasn't obvious to me initially. At least I went in and I was, I'm always going to kind of go in assuming that what I'm going to mm. see is accurate to some extent because people aren't ever going to consciously mislead you. And I think as we break it down, I Ooh, don't... Is that true? I is mean, they can do, but... It's an outrageous thing. What about you, 571? Is this the time to have that discussion? No. no. Okay. Ne- never, David. <laughs> um, also, that conversation's been had, I think, too many times. <laughs> yes. I just think that I want to go in enthusiastic and kind of trusting and then weigh up kind of what's happening and then I can pull myself out of it if I need to or reevaluate or kind of analyse and kind of second-guess and make my final decision. My question is really, do you think the filmmakers consciously make it clear that this is not going to be 100% historically accurate? I think you can take that quite quickly and easily from the fact that it is not being portrayed as a series of events but as the recollections of potentially even a a madman. Yeah, okay. You've got a, a character who has tried to kill himself who also, since he hates God with every part of his body... When he's presented by this figure from the church, I think that actually he sees this This is a bit of fun for him. He's going to mess with yeah. this guy and have some fun. I think you can even say that what happens in the movie is more fabricated than, than you even think. So there are so many different relationships that work. And Salieri with the young, enthusiastic, you know, self-confident, self-certain priest who calls this man my son and all the rest of it. That relationship's quite a... Quite an effective one as well, isn't it? I think you're right. He thinks, right, I'm going to make this this young whippersnapper suffer. Well, think about how he uh, plays with him. He tricks him with the music. He unsettles him. He puts him on the back foot. He shows him he doesn't respect him. He chastises God before him. He openly challenges God. He kind of welcomes death and the fact that he won't meet God afterwards. And his laugh and his smile at the end when he's broken this man a little bit. Yeah. um, It's it's fascinating. I, I think you... You have to, as you watch the movie, piece together what happened and what didn't happen hmm. and how he's altered it through guilt, memory. Like what You have to study Salieri and try and work out how he's trying to present himself. And there are times in the movie where he's going to be completely honest. And that's why the moments where he's recounting the music of Mozart are some of the most hmm. um, impassioned of the whole film because that's true. Everything he's saying about listening to that music, that's not made up. Yeah. He really feels that, and you feel that emotion come through him. The fact that he clearly feels like he is in the presence of God, yeah. you you get all of that. But I think that you have to weigh up. He clearly feels guilt. He clearly blames himself in many ways for what has happened. But I wonder how many times there stuff occurs in the story that we see presented as some form of truth, but which later on you can review as... Sally Airy either trying to make himself look better. So the scene where they're composing together right before he dies, yes. that scene is so they're so unified in that moment. But then he's gone the next morning. You you do have to wonder to yourself: Is this like his, a, a slight altering events to kind of give you yes. a last ditch bit of yeah. resolution? But also because he's messing the whole time with the priest. I really think that when it comes to criticizing the movie historically, it's completely possible to review it as an mm. entire almost entirely fabricated set of Hmm. events. Right. We're talking about the film, whether it's a good movie. Anything to talk about else to talk about its quality as a movie before we go and talk about the historical accuracy? I think a key thing to talk about in just in terms of the movie itself is Mozart. He he's so grating at times, which is entirely the point. But this representation of him, which is in many ways relatively accurate, is still, I think, a surprise to us. 
I think you're, you're right, yeah. And I think the fact that they really play up to that, they really make Mozart as hard to like as possible, while also being completely like on his side and reveling in his glory, is one of the most interesting things about the whole film. Mm. And he kind of brings more of that fun and that energy and that um, campness. And the movie would be really bland if he wasn't that fun a character and that kind of childish and infantile. It isn't just they crank it up to 11, don't they? And actually, I seem to remember at the time, because this is before you were born... Yeah. Um, controversial was it controversial <laughs> that was a little bit controversial especially in you know the people around me um, oh why does he have to be called Wolfie that horrible you know that accent and oh that silly you know there was something of the the idol being vulgarised so it was quite brave I think for them to do that and yet without as you say without that bit of grit in the oyster it could just have ended up being too reverential I think it can be seen as mocking him but really the, the more I've read the more I seem to think that actually it plays him quite honestly. Was, I think ever... it was specifically about the fact that Stanzi calls him Wolfie. Yes. And specifically the laugh. All the rest of it, I think people were fine. They didn't mind the fact his vulgarity. The laugh well is, known. Is, is something. It's the laugh and it's the, and it's the Wolfie thing. Those are the things that created the controversy. And I think there were... It was, you know, in the end, it's, it turned out to be a good thing. It's, it made it more immediate. More... It's not stuffy. There's nothing stuffy yeah, about not this stuffy, film. Yeah. And it really could be. Every time we show one of his operas, um, or if you ever go to watch any of them anywhere, generally you're getting a certain type of audience. Yeah. This movie, although it will play very well to that type of audience, is really opening up yeah. Mozart's music to everybody. It's trying to make a yeah. fun story that a lot of people can go and watch and really can be yeah. enjoyed. Yeah, I mean, I, I, whenever if anybody suggests I want to go and see opera, I want to eat my liver. You know, I, can't, I find opera unbearable. And with the exception of the Don Giovanni, which I thought was a bit deadly... You couldn't listen to those bits of opera and those scenes in opera without loving it. How do you feel about the fact that everybody uses their normal accents? And that specifically Mozart is an American. It's funny, isn't it? Because that, that was also controversial at the time. And I read an article the other day about why has everybody in Star Wars now got English accents or why there's so many English accents. The English accent, RP English accent specifically, seems to rule the world of make-believe now. I think it's bizarre. I think it's... If you can't adjust for the fact that these people are speaking their normal accents, oh, well, I just think it's crazy. I think it's absolutely fine. But I think it's it's not just fine. I think it's brilliant. Right. So you take all these other people and then you put in this really, really strong American accent mm. combined with a slightly kind of childish nature to it. It gives you. It shows you immediately that he stands out from the, everybody else. Mm. It's a bit confusing sometimes when they're referring to him being German and in Vienna. And But what I mean is, like, you take all these people around him in this court and he stands out completely. Yeah. And I think it just it already puts him on the outside. It mm. makes him unique and right. individual. And it also really makes him quite uh, oppositional. So why stands it's just Stanzi and... Uh, I hadn't thought about it, but you're right. I mean, it's just I, I do think that, Yeah, I do think that there's a, it's a conscious decision to, A, not make people do too many silly accents. Every time you try and watch a, a movie set in Russia, you're guaranteed <laughs> that it's going to be an yes. absolute chore. Um, but unless you, they're Russians. Yeah, actually, I had not noticed it, but you're absolutely right, Wolf, and I'd like to formally apologise. I've watched this movie 55 billion times, so I say, and never having noticed that the only people who are act, actually speaking their own native accent is Mozart and Stanzi, isn't it? The Emperor is in a different accent. Salieri is. They're all the Kapellmeisters. He, they are the only two. Obviously, if we say this with certainty, yes, we'll be, we'll be, we'll be put right. So but, you know, I will be hesitant, but, but I definitely think that it... 
not only is it a, a better way of making the film more mm. enjoyable and easy for people to absorb, uh, it also kind of adds yeah. little bits of extra detail yeah. and kind of sets the characters apart. And I think it's a conscious decision. Yeah, it's very interesting. Uh, we basically we love the movie. Yeah, yeah, and, I, and I'm ready to to go into the history because when I started obviously trying to read up about it, one of the first articles I came across was how outlandish and completely off the mark the movie is in almost every respect. Oh, really? They talked about how Mozart is more accurate than you think. He right. he might inherently seem like the the kind of the first thing to be out of place, but how actually that he's really playing into what he really was like. Obviously, they talked about all those letters that he used to write to his cousin, mm-hmm. uh, where he obviously used to fill them with lots of sexual innuendos, yeah. puerile language, etc. And people reading about these in the future, obviously, are like, huh, this is crazy. Yeah. Is this, the, this guy <laughs> this, yeah, possibly genius. represents the yeah. greatest yeah. form of humanity. And, and he's talking about poo all okay, the time. Yeah. Wonderful. And obviously, it's possibly slightly over-dramatised for the film, but that's an artistic decision. Mm. So... That works. So I, I still think that he is relatively accurate in that sense. There were so many complaints about the fact that the movie suggests that he wasn't really well received, that his operas got okay. cancelled really early, that nobody watched them. Uh, I've read a number, some historians who were saying he was having great amounts of success. Mm. He was beloved by many. Um, though when they're showing like 15 people watching like the second performance of The Magic Flute, it would actually be like sold out. Mm. Uh, and it would be for a number of days. And it wasn't really having such a terrible time as is depicted. It, and other things were just talked about. Clearly, the main issue is everybody's like, the Salieri-Mozart relationship is unfounded mm. and they barely interacted that much. They definitely didn't have any of what happens in the film happen in real life. So I found some evidence to suggest like it could. Yeah. But generally, when I approached it, the, one of the first things I came out with was, okay, it's you don't view it as historically accurate. Yeah. It's always struck me as, again, this, this will probably go over your head, but have you have you ever seen or heard of I, Claudius? I'm aware of it. You were aware of it. So I probably warned about it. So I, Claudius is a book by Robert Graves. And I think the world's greatest ever historical novel, I like speaking hyperbole. But anyway, very good. And basically it picks up from this old theory that Livia poisoned all the Augustus because Augustus and his, uh, they all die before their age. So there's this, theory and it's quite clear a nutty theory for which there is no evidence but it's a real hoot this is the same isn't it you know you know from the beginning i think as you were saying that this is a story a dramatized idea and this is not the historically accurate bit it's it's just a perfect setting to kind of have this kind of study about people we're not really going to this film to watch an exploration of his entire life so interestingly milosh in this the extras uh, talked about the fact that he didn't want to make this movie because when he was in Czechoslovakia, of course, pre-Glasnost Czechoslovakia, yep. he had, had been made to watch so many dull, worthy biopics about dull, worthy people. And it was only when he met Peter Schaefer and saw that actually this was a drama set in a historical context that he agreed to do it. I even heard that he was watching the play and he must have been watching it pretty close to opening night. He got up at the half-time and went and found someone yes, I, was like, I need, to, I need to make this film. Yeah. That he he didn't even get he didn't even get to the resolution he was just, just absorbing it he was like this is brilliant yeah we've got to go for it so what I was reading is that it was um, Alexander Pushkin kind of came up with the idea of the alleged rivalry and he kind of made it into a play in I think eighteen thirty mm. and I think that's generally where the first kind of traces of this story come from 
And then obviously Peter Schaefer is using that story as his main, I think, one of the main reference points for this. So we can agree that's all fine, I think, can't we, that we know it's not historical. I'm interested in the stuff about the poverty and some of his work being not well received. Yeah, the the impression I got was that Throughout the movie, Salieri seems to stop him from succeeding. Um, the impression I get is that that was never happening. They were kind of operating in slightly different circles. He was still producing all of his operas and they were all doing really well. So why wasn't Mozart more financially successful? The received wisdom about Mozart is always that he died in a pauper's grave and he was very poor. And that's clearly not true. And actually the film doesn't show that because they stay in those posh apartments all the way through. But they have money worries, which is also true. So that seemed to me to be quite accurately represented. But if, if he's not having... Is everything successful? I, he's probably spending his money. Like, football star or something. Mm. Three years after they retire, yeah. they're bankrupt. Cool. Kanye having no money. Yeah. You can only assume that it's spending more than they have yeah. so consistently. Definitely the impression I got was that if he was struggling, it was, it was never because of Salieri. Yeah. Salieri was not getting some of his plays cancelled. He was not trying to do any of those things. He was... Didn't seem as threatened. Yeah. Um, he was kind of doing his own thing. Right. Mozart was doing his own thing. It's interesting, yes, because I, I suppose inevitably there's a certain amount of hindsight. When you watch that, you think, so, well, I've never heard of Salieri and I've heard of Mozart. And so you project your own And, and it is true that, that Salieri essentially vanished. Mm. His music just right. disappeared. Yeah. It, really, what the, I think the impression I was getting is actually that through uh, Pushkin and maybe even later Schaefer, mm. they actually bought about a resurgence in Salieri's work. People actually oh, go back so and right? people to go back and find it because I think a lot of his right. it's a bit like um, Boccherini and Master and Commander. That's completely I've lost you with that reference, haven't I? I'm loosely aware of it, but <laughs> okay, great. So um, I only have three points about other points about historical accuracy then, and they're all very trivial. Okay. So one is, where are all the children? He has about five children, I think, actually, and there's only one. And that is intrinsically, and it's a terrible thing to say, because children are really boring in films, aren't they, unless the film is about them. Uh, Having been a child, I'd like to object to the world about that. I was going to say, having had children, and I was like, (laughs) okay. Okay. So where are all children? But they do have one to kind of represent it, but children are really boring, aren't they? Um, The conducting. I'd like somebody who knows about musical conducting to tell me whether either F. Murray Abrahams or Tom Holtz would really... Their conducting is very unconvincing to me, is all I'm saying. Okay. A lot of arm waving around, which is the sort of thing you do in the bath, rather than... Do you not do that sort of thing in the bath? I don't compose the music bath. and, you know... Anyway, throw your arms around. Anyway, that was it. The third was the lime. I mean, the lime was scandalous. The lime? You didn't notice the lime. So... The last scene, okay, is winging it down with rain, okay? Yes. Requiem playing, everybody's in black, the hearse gets taken away, they pass yes. the cows, they go into the graveyard, they dump his body, winging it down with rain. There's a barrel of lime there, they guy oh, takes yes, out, he yeah. chucks it in, and there's this powder goes over the body, and... And they go off, and... It's like watching the movie. And they, they leave the line. There's no top to the barrel of lime, I see. There is no top to the barrel line. First of all, it wouldn't have been powdered when they got out. Let's take these eight Oscars away. Secondly, put the top back on the line when you leave. Come on. I mean, yeah, take them away. (laughs) Yes. Best picture revoked. (laughs) 
None of you can ever attend the Academy Awards again or vote on films. The thing is, that has worried me for 30 years. It feels so good to get it off my chest. That is the first time I have relayed my worries about the line. Okay? It's like I'm a priest and you're... Yes, I, you feel... Yes, I feel better now. I feel I won't cut my throat now. Sorry, was that insensitive of me? No, no. <laughs> um, I, I, do, I definitely... You just reminded me. I do think that when I was reading that he, he was buried in a grave like that. Like, yeah, and a, but apparently that was what the emperor had decreed because everybody was spending their money on these outrageous funerals. So the, the emperor said, you're only allowed to have this level of funeral. So it's not that he was buried in a pauper's grave, which is what's often reported, actually. It's that that was what he did. Yeah, and I, I think it kind of gives you the suggestion that nobody really remembers him, but the impression that I got was actually that lots of events were taking place at the time to kind of commemorate him mm. already. I, I think it's just, Oh, is that right? I think so. I think people right. were putting on his plays, do, right. doing kind of stuff, and... Yeah, I just I think the movie... He was a figure in society, he wasn't just forgotten, and yeah. died in irrelevant death in an irrelevant place but all of this as we've been saying <clears throat> since Salieri is an unreliable narrator every one of these scenes is essentially a story he's telling to a man he doesn't like mm. so I really think you have to take everything with a pinch of lime pinch of lime um, solid wet soggy lime rather than powdery type yeah yes I, I think you just have to consider what is the purpose of him retelling this story a lot of it plays into his version of events the film will just kind of is not going to show you that there were all these parties and stuff going on because it's kind of unnecessary we already know that his legacy is greater than Salieri's mm. it also plays more into the darkness and kind of despair of his ending and thus the kind of possible success of Salieri so I, I just think a lot of the time whenever you come across some of these inaccuracies they just help to kind of add into more what the movie is trying to do the whole aim of the play and and the movie is to create a really good drama and not create historical accuracy, precision. Like it, It's not really trying to tell you that story. So if we take that central relationship out of the historical accuracy requirement, it's pretty historically accurate, isn't it? The atmosphere, the even though it's in Prague rather than Vienna, everything looks very 18th century. You know, apart from that, it's pretty good, isn't it? Yeah, and, and actually Salieri did confess to killing Mozart this is one of the things that makes it hard to study. There's almost no evidence about mm. Salieri. His, a lot of his existence has disappeared. It's really hard to find documents about him, information mm. about him. And then in 1823, he was reported to have confessed to killing Mozart right. while he was suffering a breakdown. When he recovered, he denied it. So there's, I think there's, there's yeah. enough there that there's you can... just go, something really annoying. There's something yeah. there that you can look into that and say, that's really interesting. Imagine if mm. that was true. And I think that's kind of where it's coming from. Right. It's not entirely fabricated. It, this could have happened. Yeah. We almost don't care. Yeah. All we know is that this kid came out of nowhere mm. and his legacy was yeah. unbound. And he just kind of yeah. threw himself upon the world and we've fallen at his knees and we still will do yeah. probably for the rest of humanity. Like, he is about the greatest that's ever come. And it's just fascinating to think that he was like uh, this crazy yeah. kid with a desire to say random yeah. childish things. Yeah, indeed. Okay, so we're going to mark it. First of all, quality is a film. We're marking one to ten. What are you going to put it as? Ten's pretty hard to get, so this is I think the I'd Nadia say nine. I think I'll say nine. Right, okay. And why are not giving it ten? Just because I think we should really reserve ten for, for a true masterpiece. Okay. And I think this movie's pretty close, but... I don't okay. think it's going to get so it's not Nadia Kamenechi. Does that mean anything to you? No. Christ almighty. Gymnast. Got ten for everything. Oh, I see. Okay. Uh, I, I'm with you. 
yeah, nine is a great mark. Quite sure why I'm not giving it ten, but yes, nine. Agreed. Historical accuracy? Are you going to say five? That's really low. Well, I mean, I, think of everything that's good about it. The I mean, it feels real. The feeling, the interpretation of the characters, all the costumes. I think I think purely if you just go... Five you, is brutal. I know, you're a brutal man. Well, if you're, brutal, you're so young and so brutal. OK, what would, what would you give it? And then- I would say the story's got to work as a story, therefore there's going to be some inaccuracy. But everything around it and everything they could make accurate, it seems to me they, uh, they made accurate. They worked hard at making it accurate. I would give it a, an eight. OK, so are we going to come down to six? I think where there's a split score, I might put it in red. OK. This is what Wolf said. This is what David said. Let's try that. Okay, I, I'm going to stick to five, and I'm going to say that I'm giving the five for setting, costumes, music, etc., all of that. But since they've all openly admitted that they're completely playing with right. history, because it, that's not the point of the movie, so this is not a mark against the movie. Yeah. I don't think it requires historical accuracy in any sense. Okay. In order to be incredible, I think I'm going to be given five. Cool. Before we close, then let me intervene from a time warp for a quick roundup of the Facebook group debate we had, which was a really fun discussion. The debate started with Matt raising the spectre of carry-on movies with Carry On Jack, which is the carry-on equivalent to Master and Commander. This had one positive outcome, with an investigation into the second best gag in an English language movie, revealed eventually by Cheryl to be Caesar's infamy, infamy, they've all got it infamy, which then led to the mutual celebration of something called Rinse the Blood of My Toga by people called Wayne and Schuster. Anyway, that was between Andrew and Cheryl. I do love a good reunion. There was general appreciation of the weevil gag, I'm delighted to say, though it led inevitably onto Mel Brooks for some reason, and also to the life of Brian. Juan admitted to stealing the gag regularly in his conversations, which is impressive because, as William noted, introducing the topic of weevils into a general conversation can be really tricky. Kev then delivered enthusiastic feedback from the Admiralty itself. Although it was a strangely truncated communication, which seemed to be suggesting that our singing did not meet the standards of the senior service, which has got to be wrong. While Holly seemed to be suggesting that rather than singing, dragons are the critical component of a naval movie. James, however, gave us 10 out of 10 for the singing, so that's all right then. There was some debate about the books and which was better, movie or book, book or movie. And I guess we resolved that when it's a film of the book or play, we should really be talking about how well the film matched up. But we haven't done that for either Amadeus or A Man for All Seasons, which are coming up. So, yeah. The verdict, by the way, was, well, mixed on the answer to the question as to which was better, book or movie. Brendan then posted a link to an article asking how important it is that historical movies are accurate, which is a fascinating question. I hope we get the chance to debate some more. Is the job of a film to entertain and the rest of us just have to educate ourselves so that we can critique the history? Or should it be, as Greg felt, there are so many good stories out there in history anyway that really filmmakers ought to be able to avoid bad history? Braveheart came up at this point. We will do Braveheart in the future and we can chew that particular cud again then. Andrew made the superbly good point that there's a distinction to be drawn between period pieces and movies focusing on real historical events. We need to bear that in mind because it's a good point. We ended with a discussion about Russell Crowe, who seems to be something of a polarising figure, it has to be said. The discussion ran all the way from Tom's simple statement, and I quote, he's the best and so is everything he's in, which seems, you know, clear, to a general feeling of distaste. 
Karen seemed to sum up the general feeling that Robin Hood was not his greatest hour, but that it was probably the script rather than Russ that was at fault. And in any way, as Cedric noted, the film had William Marshall in it, so how bad can it be? Nicole, though, was reasonably upset about Les Mis, and I don't think she was alone. So, you know, we had the full range of views. Jennifer made the really interesting point that in comparing Gladiator and Master and Commander, Gladiator has more of a focus on the common man defying the depraved elite sort of thing, whereas Master and Commander lacks that kind of focus. I'm sorry, I couldn't find the comment again, so I can't remember who said this, but someone very interestingly noted that Master and Commander is quite unusual in taking a view that is accepting of authority, a sort of conservative with a little c. So, in the flogging scene, for example, the general air is one of acceptance that this is the way it must be in such a situation. So, I love the debate. Thank you, everyone. And this brings me to the poll, which was pretty enthusiastic, I must say, with only 5% of you sending the film to the archive room and over half of you giving it top marks, and 18 of you putting it in line for one of your top 10 historical movies. Well, 17, since I cannot tell a lie, and one of them was me. Anyway, it was a great discussion. I really enjoyed it. Thanks. Thank you very much. Okay, so look, do comment, everybody. Uh, We really want your comments on on Facebook or indeed the website. Tell us what you think. Tell us what we've got wrong. Um, And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with another film. So it's goodbye from David and it's goodbye from... Wolf. Is that the right way to end this? Anyway, goodbye. I think so. (laughs) Are you not entertained? Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.